if you don't have those humbling moments through some sort of user testing or interviews, um, you know, it, it's you're probably not doing it right. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Each Another, a podcast about designing for people and business. My name is Tom Cunningham, I'm a senior visual designer here with Each Another, and today I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Mr. Piers Scott, one of our most insightful UX designers. Hey Piers. Hi Tom, how are you? Good, how are you? And I'm one of our principal designers, Mr. Lawrence Veal. Hey Tom. Good, good, good. Um, so today we're talking about the future of e-commerce. In particular, we'll be examining how customer behavior is frequently overlooked even though it holds the key to business innovation. So we've been working with a number of clients recently who have access to huge quantities of data, uh, but it's largely quantitative data. And while it's incredibly useful for us, uh, what we're actually finding is that it's incredibly incomplete. So more often than not, it doesn't include one of the missing pieces, which is human behavior. I was reminded of what Elgovy said, uh, where he said that people who ignore research are as dangerous as generals who ignore enemy signals. Now, Ogilvy was talking at a time when data was incredibly difficult and costly to get. These days, we have access to clients who, uh, who have no end of data. What they lack is an understanding of separating signal from noise. And for us, design thinking gives us the framework for finding and processing the signal. It really allows us to focus on something that isn't measured by qualitative data, and that is human behavior. I suppose to throw in another Ogilvy quote, um, he once said that uh, he pursues knowledge like a pig pursues truffles. And that's the difference things <laughs> between, you know, uh, data and insights. So I think design thinking gives us a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it requires companies to look at their business from the outside in. So from their customer's point of view. And I think the other th- one of the other things it does is that it uses prototyping to reduce business risk. Okay, I'm going to do a bit of jargon busting here. So we're talking about design thinking so what does that actually mean in the can we get a real world example i worked with one client a few years ago that collected and packaged and sold stock market data so they're in a really good position when it came to understanding big data they had access to literally decades of stock market movements and could make amazing predictive analysis on these for their customers but their user base had plateaued they knew everything about their customers their business and their industry but what they needed was help to figure out why their customers weren't upgrading their packages. And many customers were on the same packages for years or why they weren't attracting new customers. Uh, their data and their analysts couldn't actually tell them this. So we interviewed their current customers, former customers and potential customers to try and work out answers to these, to these questions. And what we were able to answer were really three very specific questions. So why were, why were customers not upgrading? Well, most of the customers didn't know that other services existed and were offered by this company. And those that were interested in upgrading or changing the packages couldn't understand how these how to do that. So the, the descriptions of those packages weren't particularly clear. Now, of their lapsed customers, the issue was value. Most of these didn't know what other services were available to them in the packages that they were currently subscribed to. So they weren't getting value out of what they'd uh, sub, uh, subscribed to. Of their potential customers, many of these needed more information about the company before they signed up to it. So with all this data and more besides, uh, we designed a few things such as how their packages and their services worked, how they spoke about these and how they promoted them. 
one of the key insights for us was that their customers did not know what other services the company was offering. So we designed a service that allowed their customers to compare and contrast different products. And we redesigned how they spoke about these products so that the proposition was clear and the customers could easily compare and contrast and choose the one that we worked best for them. Um, of the results so far, they've been really positive. But these aren't solutions that the company could have gotten to without talking to the customers, without looking at qualitative data. Okay, so you say design thinking complements big data. Um, since these things seem like polar opposites to some people, how can they work together? I'll take that one, Tom. I think um, companies currently use their quantitative data in, in the main to answer one specific question. What happened and how often? Now, what you'll notice about that one is that it's about what happened in the past, but it actually fails to answer another simple question. Well, why did that happen? Um, the data can tell them why their customers failed to adopt their service. You can't really measure what hasn't happened, right? Or why their existing customers have stopped using it. So the only people who know the answer to this question are actually the customers themselves. So in-depth qualitative research into, into the customer's behavior through the form of interviews uh, and their expectations will help them find those unmet needs. And it's in these unmet needs where we find opportunities for innovation. So one of the things I, I was think, thinking about recently was uh, grocery shopping. So Napoleon said that the British were a nation of shopkeepers. So it's one of the most traditional of industries, but it's ripe for disruption, which isn't really a surprise because it's a very data-driven industry that is incredibly close to its customers. So an example might be that you know the supermarkets in the UK have moved to same-day delivery. And I don't think this is just to compete with the convenience of Amazon, but it's because their data told them that you know, customers' behavior was changing. Customers were moving away from the kind of the one larger in-store shop per week to kind of more regular, frequent, smaller shops. So again, online is, is changing to meet that behavior. And over the last couple of years, our own research into the supermarket business shows that customers are increasingly looking past price and placing more, far more value on convenience. So what might this look like if you were to take uh, both a quantitative and qualitative uh, perspective? Well, it could look like a subscription-based service. So if you know that all of your customers uh, buy the same things every week uh, with very little uh, difference between one week and another, why don't we automatically deliver these to the customer without forcing the customer having to visit the website, log in, add all the same stuff to their cart and check out again when the supermarket could simply send the customer a simple notification saying, do you want your weekly shop delivered as usual? Uh, or do you want to add anything to it? Or if you're away, do you want to just put it on pause? And then allow the customer to track their delivery from store to door in real time. So it's kind of the uberfication of grocery shopping. Yeah, this, this sounds uh, like how I think about grocery shopping. In, in my mind, there's a, a mental checklist of things that I buy and I use all the time. Uh, and when I run out of an item, I just want it replaced. You know, my wife would disagree now. She likes to be a bit more adventurous with it, what we eat and stuff. And I know there's pe other people out there who like to mix up their food list more than, say, for example, I would. So I think accommodating that behavior, too, is is important. And that's what you've mentioned about the notifications, being well, able to tweak. Yeah, we've seen that kind of uh, in, in uh, fits and spurts, like Amazon, the dash button, you know, um, you know, so that at the point of the thing running out, just press the button. And if you're an Amazon Prime customer, it will be shipped to you and you'll get it either the same or next day. So that convenience factor there is what Amazon is playing up on. And they've expanded what I think or what I thought at the time was a prototype into lots and lots of 
products, uh, you know, across the range that, that a grocery would, uh, shop would kind of play in. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's it's really interesting what they're doing there. But if they know the frequency at, we, at which you buy uh, at s- certain products like washing powder, that kind of stuff, uh, they can at least send a confirmation to say, you know, uh, you might be running out soon. Add it to your list. Um, so I think there's there's something in that um, yeah. that convenience, you know. Um, and you can also see that working for things like uh, Christmas. So you buy the same types of stuff each Christmas or Easter. Birthdays are known event every year, so you can have the cake you know, ready to go, maybe with some customization on it. Um, and it really takes the hassle out of organizing the stuff, which you do every year by habit. Mm-hmm. So, but I think the, the important thing is marrying both the, the quantitative and the qualitative, you know, actually talking to customers and really understanding what they're about, what their needs are, while having the quantitative data to back that up. Mm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, a lot of companies are, especially you see, you see interviews with leaders, uh, leaders of large companies, and they're always talking about their focuses on you know, customer needs. And like, what, what does that actually mean? I suppose that's it's a marrying of, as you're saying, the quantitative data, because it's, it's very easy to kind of look at this and say, oh, these numbers are telling us X, Y, or Z. But, you know, it, without actually talking to the, the, the customers face to face, you might find out that there's, there are many pain points that you're missing or opportunities. If you, if you give your customers, you know, 10 options, chances are each one of those options will be selected a certain number of times, but you might have excluded an option that they actually want that you don't know that they need. Yeah. I suppose I'll take this one because it's, yeah. it's the one that you've got in front of me. It's yeah. the nearest match. Yeah. You know? So I think uh, what we're kind of saying is that where big data fails to include or ignores the human aspect of data, it creates a real gap of understanding between companies and their customers. And this gap is really important. You know, within this gap lies uh, the business's ability to meet emerging customer needs. And if they don't uh, close that gap, it's where disruption can happen, where competitors come in who really understand uh, the customer needs within that gap. Um, so it's within this gap that startups file, find their foothold and grow to become significant competitors. So Airbnb is a good example, Tom, you know. Kind of came out nowhere people, you know, hotels are looking after oh how can we make the place look fancy how can we work on the rates and what actually people want is more freedom to be able to come and go as they please to have to feel like it's a home away from home yeah i think that's one thing i think halo is a good example uh, halo is a good example because i remember the days of waiting around for a taxi in the cold maybe a bit later than i should have been going home 2 a.m 3 a.m from town the problems associated with, with actually catching a, a, a cab uh, leaving stuff behind in the cab, or even for work, waiting on a cab. You know, the you ring in and they say, oh, "Yeah, it'll be there to you in about fifteen minutes." And half an hour later, you're still humming and hawing as to where your taxi is. But there's so many little gaps in that experience that uh, the incumbents, whoever they were, didn't really identify. But once Halo came in, it still works as if it's magic, yeah. uh, with all of those little problems solved. Uh, the greater trust in the business uh, of, of getting a cab. Mm-hmm. Uh, greater safety um so all those little aspects of the service i think halo nailed yeah um so much so that they've co- become so successful now that they've been bought over and i think you will be saying goodbye to the halo brand in the coming weeks um but it just shows you know a, a really good example of understanding the customer's needs in each of those little gaps yeah i was never someone who used taxis a lot but when we start using halo especially for work um i find for over the last year or so every time i'm in a taxi i'm always just talking to them about halo and uber and i know if i notice they have those apps 
I'm just kind of thinking, asking them, like, what's the experience like from your point of view as well? Um, and like they're curious to hear mine as well. But one of the things I found was was great was beforehand you'd ring if you're ringing for a taxi to arrange it, you know, you're kind of quite powerless, and you might if it wasn't showing up, you were ringing back saying, "Where's that taxi?" You know, whereas now Halo was a great example because you can see on the map how far it is, is away. It's giving a certain level of control or visibility back to the back to the customer, which I think is great. And the old system was good enough. It, it worked. It it wasn't smooth, but it worked. So it was a good enough system. This, if this, if Halo had been developed by one of the taxi businesses, um, and there's no reason why it couldn't, they would own that business. They would own that lost revenue. Mm-hmm. It's kind of complacency. If it's not broke, don't fix it. But apparently, you can improve it as opposed to fixing it. And I think it starts with your customer, right? So understanding yeah. their pain points. And that's where you kind of uncover those gaps of those unmet needs that we talked about. So I think it's a really, really nice example for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, another example that we um, worked on recently was a big advertising company who had more data than they would ever need, but it was all quantitative data. And they couldn't understand why small businesses weren't using their service. And then by small business, I mean dog walkers, beauticians, interior designers, small businesses of between one to 10 people thereabouts. So why weren't they using this product? And um, they tried to optimize the site. So they looked at the numbers. They were getting some incremental improvements, but not enough to, sh- to move the dial. And uh, so it was only when we actually interviewed customers, videoed those interviews in their place of work, so really contextual, uh, that we understood the pressures those people were under. So time pressure being the, the number one. They've got a business to run. They don't have time to sit down and actually uh, learn a product. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by doing that, they're taking time away from actually running their business or from their family life. They, they literally didn't have time to specialize in use of this product. And what was very interesting was the way um, they picked substitute products or, or alternative products that, that actually met their needs. One, um, that you could place an advertisement within about you know, two minutes via a mobile device. So Facebook ads being kind of one of the competitors. Um, and what was really interesting about that was um, they didn't need to learn the thing. They already knew how to use Facebook and uh, write a post on Facebook talking about their business. All this did was add an extra small step that said, how many people do you want to reach and how much do you want to spend? Mm-hmm. And just like that, uh, they felt they'd done their marketing. Whether they were successful or not is another thing, but it really exposed this gap of people, A, not understanding the, the incumbent product mm-hmm. um, enough to be able to take uh, the next steps. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really kind of brought the customer into the business uh, at a really um, emotional level by showing these videos that people just did not have the time and it showed them the actual problem they're faced with with trying to, to address uh, not the perceived one of if only we changed a bit of copy or had a stronger call to action here mm-hmm. we'd be okay uh, it's actually a fundamental reimagining of what the product can be for this particular segment it's a very humbling moment when you're looking back on uh, user testing like that and you see how people are failing to work or use your product when you think in your mind oh this is very intuitive to use or you know it's it's informative and it's just not it's not hitting the mark and it's it's a great way uh it's a great way of actually just looking at at your product with fresh eyes and getting a fresh perspective on what well, needs to be fixed 
I think uh, user research uh, should be a humbling experience for the designers of the product team. If it's not, you might not be doing it right. You need mm-hmm. to uh, literally have that oh shit moment where you're going, you've got this wrong. Arguably, the sooner that happens, the better before you start spending lots of money on developing the thing. Um, but uh, yeah, if you're not, you know, if you don't have those humbling moments through some sort of user testing or interviews, um, you know, it, it's you're probably not doing it right. Or you're, or you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, Another interesting one around context was uh, we worked with the bank a few years ago and um, from interviewing customers, we asked them, tell us how you, you know, use your mobile when it comes to banking. And one of the really kind of critical insights was that people would use their banking app all the time when going to a physical store. And the reason they were doing that was just to check they had enough money in their account to avoid embarrassment. Um, so by that I mean they didn't arrive at the till and have a declined purchase because of lack of sufficient funds when they may have had money sitting in a savings account that they could have quickly transferred. And we heard this over and over again, enough for it to be a pattern. So that kind of gave rise to the quick balance, which is just something that shows your balance without having to key in your, your password or your, your PIN into the app. Um, so it's a read-only thing. It shows you how much you have, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a quick balance feature. It's an embarrassment saving feature. And knowing the job that it does for the people in the context that it does it uh, through those interviews that we did is was a really important uh, piece, uh, feature, you know. And without that empathy, I don't think that feature would have made it because there was quite a lot of uh, heavy lifting in terms of opening up the system to be read-only. There was also a setting that had to be put in place to, to turn it off because there were still customers, at least 50% of them, uh, who didn't want it, who felt it was uh, less secure. Um, so in order to, to move um, the dial a bit on that particular one, you can imagine how much work was re- required. Um, you, we really needed the customer in the room to help us push it forward. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's where we got that insight. I think there's an interesting one on that where they had, they had a lot of data on their customers, but they also made a lot of assumptions and they did assume that some of their assumptions were as actually data. So we saw a lot of people were using the desktop website on their mobiles to make international transfers. Um, they assumed that people didn't necessarily want to make international transfers on their mobile devices, mm. but we, we observed that they actually did. So designing around for that, so that this assumption was taken off the table and actual data, qualitative data was replaced, replaced it, and that became more useful for them and for their customers. Yeah, and I think back back to the, the quick balance one, the data showed lots of people logging in, uh, but doing nothing. And the correct assumption was that people were checking their balance. Um, that said, they didn't know where they were checking the balance or why. And by actually interviewing customers, we could see what the context of that balance check was. It actually wasn't on the desktop, it was on the mobile, which the data told us, but the context of why and where was so important. Uh, and that's what gave rise to that feature that the people who use it absolutely love it. And if I have a phone that I'm using my fingerprint to open, you know, I'm, I'm happy enough to have a certain level of security exposed to me. The fact that I can just tap on, a, on, a, on an app and show me that number and have the ability to disable it if I need to. It's probably enough for as a user. So is there any key takeaways for our listeners today? You don't know what you don't know until you've spoken to your customers. So your your qualitative, quantitative data gives you a nice impression that you understand everything and that you can make decisions based on that. But 
there's always a context around that that if you don't have and you can only get by talking to your customers if you don't have that then you're working with an incomplete set of data and that's always a dangerous thing to do if you're making big decisions on product cycles and product releases yeah i i just echo that just talk to your customers great stuff okay well thanks very much for your time today guys thank you, thank you. thanks tom thanks bruce until next time <laughs>